when we come into dialogue with other voices very much unlike ours that are also Christian voices seeking faithfully to follow Jesus Christ, that, that helps us figure out both where we have some blinders, where uh, we have some unexamined presuppositions that need examining and critiquing, but it also helps us become more comfortable with the other who is unlike us and who may in fact have something to teach us, who may in fact be a voice through which the Spirit speaks. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship has valued theological education as a vital component of vocational ministry preparation for more than 25 years. It puts these words to action by investing in students who are current and future ministry leaders in CBF Live. The fellowship awards up to 70 scholarships annually to Baptist students enrolled in the Master of Divinity degree program at an accredited institution of higher education. For more information about all that CBF offers students, visit cbf.net slash seminary resources. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Steve Harmon. He's a professor of historical theology at Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity in North Carolina. We'll talk a bit about that as well as a couple of other things. He's co-editor of a book, Sources of Light, Resources for Baptist Churches Practicing Theology. We'll be talking about that book and what it's about. And then we'll also talk about ecumenical dialogue. He's particularly involved right now with international dialogue effort between Baptists and Catholics. And he'll be talking about that in the program as well. So a lot going on. I was really excited to have the chance to talk with Steve. I've enjoyed getting to know him at Baptist World Alliance meetings the last few years. To hear some of his presentations, to read his newest book, Sources of Light. So I hope that you'll find this conversation to be both informative and interesting. So here's my interview with Steve Harmon of Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity and co-editor of the book, Sources of Light. Well, Steve, first of all, thanks for joining us on the program. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. We are, of course, in an unusual year. And so, first of all, I just wanted to ask, how are you and your loved ones doing during this, this time of coronavirus? We're doing well. I am on sabbatical leave, which turned out to, uh, to have good timing associated with it. it. It meant that I was not doing archival work in England, as I hoped to be during September, but I, I've had lots to keep me busy with several writing projects. My wife is our director of admissions for the School of Divinity and is keeping recruiting going, sometimes virtually. And our 14-year-old son is going to school part online and part in person. We're all learning that online world. And I guess, although you're on sabbatical this semester, probably in the spring, you had to make that quick transition. And I wonder how, how that has been for your students in, in all of this process. It's been a learning experience, but I, I think a good one for everybody. We, we were well positioned in, in terms of our School of Divinity in that we already had a few hybrid classes with some face-to-face -face class meetings, the rest of it online. 
the courses I was teaching in, in the spring were all hybrid. And so that meant that when we shut the campus down, I already had a means of, of keeping this going through the virtual component. And the, the rest of our classes made the shift that way too. And we should probably introduce where you are. You're Gardner-Webb in North Carolina. And so for our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with the school, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about who you all are. Sure. We're one of a, a few schools of divinity and seminaries that, that are partner institutions of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Southern Baptist Convention, as you well know, experienced a fragmentation during the 1990s especially. And during the 90s, several institutions were, were founded as alternatives to, to the SBC seminaries, but also to do locally, regionally, in connection with the church constituencies that we already had, a more regionally focused form of theological education. So that, that means that we have a partner association with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. But our students are not exclusively CBF. They're from a wide variety of Baptist traditions and a wide variety of other Christian traditions. But historically, in terms of founding and in terms of primary relationships, we are a Baptist theological education institution. And you're a professor of historical theology. Right. And I wonder if you could tell us, for those that might not be familiar with that job title, what's the... What does that mean? Because I think we all know kind of theology and we know history. And so what's a what's a historical theologian doing? Well, part of what that means is that both church history and theology, systematic theology, or sometimes it's called constructive theology, both of those fall within my teaching responsibilities. I I teach our we have now a two course sequence that combines church history and systematic theology in those two semesters. So that, that's one of my primary teaching areas. I also teach Christian ethics, theological ethics periodically. One of the uh, distinctives of our divinity school is that we, we have spiritual formation, vocational ministry formation woven throughout the curriculum. R- rather than having a single course on spiritual formation, they have a course in their first year, another course spiritual formation in their second year, another formation course in their third year that's also tied with with ministry supervision. And I've taught some in those spiritual formation, ministry formation courses as well. Yeah, I think that maybe one of the things that with more traditional approaches, you know, systematic theology and so forth, is sometimes we, we don't always make the connections to the past. And that's one of the things that you're... And I wonder if you could give us a little bit of of why... Why is that helpful? Why is that important for us to be considering theology this way? Well, theology, rightly done at least, in my perspective, is not a, a set of ideas that are, are disconnected from the context in which the church developed those ideas. It does draw on the Bible, but we don't simply skip from the Bible all the way to our our theological concepts. There, there's a history of development there. And not only do we lose something if we're not aware of that history of development, we, we also lose some of the, the help that these contexts in which the church was hammering out its faith and practice in 
lots of different times and places, they have some lessons to teach us for how we are doing that as faith communities today in a particular time and place. So our theology is going to have some rooting in our particular context, our social location. There are 2,000 years of the churches doing theology in particular contexts, from particular social locations, and that can help us do that for our time and place if we're aware of it and in dialogue with it. Yeah, I think that might be a great place of transitioning to one of the topics that I wanted to talk to you about, and that was a book that you co-edited that came out earlier this year, Sources of Light, Resources for Baptist Churches Practicing Theology. And you're, the, as I mentioned, the co-editor of Amy Chilton. And I wonder if you could first, we'll talk a little bit about a couple of aspects of the book, but I wonder first you give us the overview of, I have it here, people are just listening, but we can see each other. And it's a it's a thick volume, There's a, and there's a lot of, of, of chapters in it with a lot of different writers. So I wonder if you give us a, 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 the pitch as to what this book is about. I'll start by saying a little bit about the, the background of it. My previous solo authored book was Baptist Identity and the Ecumenical Future. And one of the chapters in that book proposed that whereas Catholics, for example, ha have a particular, very formal, official way of figuring out what its faith and practice is going to be and how that gets taught to those who are formed in the faith, it's what they call magisterium, which is simply an official form of the church teaching what it needs to be to be the church. Well, in, in saying that that way, I'm echoing the thought of a Baptist theologian who is very influential for, for my own theological development, James William McClendon Jr. He wrote a three-volume systematic theology in which he defined doctrine as the church teaching as she must teach if she is to be the church here and now. So the focus isn't so much on a set of formally articulated doctrines that do not change that the church keeps teaching, but rather on the practice of the church figuring out what it is that the church needs to teach in a particular time and place to, to be a faithful community of followers of Jesus Christ. Well, that's another way of doing what Catholics are doing when they do magisterium. Well, in a chapter of that book, I argued that free churches, Baptist churches in particular, have our own way of doing magisterium. I called it free church magisterium, but it's rather this congregationally located way of figuring out what we as a particular community of followers of Jesus Christ need to form people in in order to be a faithful community of followers of Jesus Christ. And in that chapter, I argued that all the resources we need for doing that are not in our own local church. We need connections beyond the local church. Some of those connections are going to be with our associations of churches we're in fellowship with, whether you call them denominations or conventions or fellowships or denominate works. We need those resources, but the resources that we need are not only Baptist. They're to be found in other Christian traditions. They're in the whole church, both the church that preceded us historically and the whole church spread throughout the world today. 
And so I argued that if we're going to do the best job that we can in drawing on all these resources to form people into faith in particular local congregations, we need intentionally to draw on lots of different voices, historical voices that need to be a part of the conversation in the local church, other Christian voices in the world today that need to be a part of that conversation. In as much as many of the churches in my context have tended to be predominantly white churches, there are resources beyond that particular form of church identity. Black theology, liberation theology in a wide variety of contexts, including Latin America and Asia and Africa, feminist theology, all of these are particular contexts in which people are hearing the voice of the Spirit, helping particular communities and particular contexts understand what it means to follow Jesus in that time and place. Those voices need to be a part of the conversation in our community as we're figuring out how to follow Jesus here and now. So this book, in many ways, is an experiment in collaboratively with 23 other Baptist theologians who are a part of this project asking what might it mean to bring all these different voices, as the title suggests, these sources of light through which the Spirit enlightens our way in following Jesus, what might it mean to listen to those voices in Baptist churches that, that are practicing theology now? You're talking about this idea of listening, and you have this line in the the conclusion that you and your co-editor wrote talking about this what you're trying to accomplish in this book and that you say that listening is a practice that like all practices of the church is susceptible to corruption therefore our listening is always in need of conversion and conversion comes in part through the re-examination occasioned by the intercontextual hearing of voices of difference and i think that's one of the key things that you, one of the things i appreciate about this book is this idea of you know, we have all of these different perspectives, some of which I felt fairly familiar with that I've had a chance to read theologians from some of those traditions. And some of them, I'll be honest, were pretty much an introduction to me to get a little chapter of, of this. And so you mentioned a few of them, liberation and black, you have Hispanic and Asian. I'm not going to read all 23 of them, but there's refugee and immigrant perspectives, people with disabilities. And then you also have some coming from other traditions, Reformation, Catholic, as well as historic Baptist confessions of faith. And so I think, you know, one of the things that we sometimes hear is, well, you know, we're just doing theology. Theology is theology. So why are you putting these adjectives, you know, in front of this theology? And, and what you're trying to tell us from this book is that none of us are just doing theology without an adjective. None of us are just doing theology from the, the absolute truth sort of perspective. We all are bringing our own contextual understanding. So I wonder if you can kind of talk about that, because that's the that's the really, I, I feel like the, the mission and goal of this book is to help us realize that there are other sources of light, other theologies, other perspectives that could help us as we're reading scripture and applying it? Well, part of the context in which we were doing theology as local churches for this particular time and place is a time and place in which the, the principal problem facing us, both in church culture and in the larger culture that church culture inhabits, is the other. How do we relate to the other, the one who is unlike us? And so 
part of, of the corrective to our unexamined presuppositions, our, our not realizing that sometimes our contextualized theology has more to do with our context uh, than it may necessarily have to do with what's actually in the Bible that informs our faith and practice, what's there in the Christian tradition. When we come into dialogue with other voices very much unlike ours that are also Christian voices seeking faithfully to follow Jesus Christ, that, that helps us figure out both where we have some blinders, where uh, we have some unexamined presuppositions that need examining and critiquing, but it also helps us become more comfortable with the other who is unlike us and who may in fact have something to teach us, who may in fact be a voice through which the Spirit speaks, a source of light through which we receive illumination from the Spirit. Yeah, I like that. You know, it's the the, the saying what that where where you stand determines what you see. And so you're you're trying to help us see then from where other people are standing, not only to understand the way they read the Bible and maybe challenge us, but also to understand them and and who they are and, and what they see. I do want to know, and this won't be a surprise to people based on some of the things you've already said, that you all, in addition to kind of writing the introduction and conclusion and, and editing the other chapters, you also are one of the contributors for one of the chapters. Right. And, and the surprise won't be is that you write about uh, ecumenical convergence and, and learning how what Baptists can can take from ecumenical experiences. And so I wonder if you could tell us why this has been such an important part of your journey and your ministry and your writing and thinking about ecumenical cooperation and dialogue. Yeah, that, that has been a significant part of, of my own self-understanding of who I am as a theologian, what it is that I'm doing as a theologian on behalf of the church. And it goes back to my own theological education. That was done in Baptist context. I went to a Baptist college, Howard Payne University in Texas, Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth for my master's and doctoral degrees. However, during my doctoral studies there, I wanted to focus particularly on something that we call patristic theology. That's the theology of the first few centuries after the New Testament. The, the word itself has to do with fathers, church fathers, but it involves significant church mothers, too. There, there are significant voices of women from the early Christian tradition that this field of study has to do with. But in order to do more work in that area, I arranged for half of my doctoral coursework to be done at the Catholic University of America focused in in patristics early christian studies i i did that transferred it back to southwestern wrote a doctoral dissertation in a particular aspect of patristic theology was hired to teach theology at another of these new cooperative baptist fellowship schools campbell university divinity school also in north carolina and in that position those first couple of years, I was doing several things all at once. On the one hand, I was teaching mostly Baptist students then, but increasingly students from lots of other denominational traditions, and trying to be faithful to those traditions, informing them not as Baptists, but as Methodists and uh, 
Presbyterians and Pentecostal Christians, other traditions who came to us. So there, there was beginning to be an ecumenical dimension to what was happening in the classroom in systematic theology. I was also continuing to do research and writing in this early period of the church's theology that in some ways was in tension with a lot of the things that we as Baptists had assumed that the New Testament taught about church, that suddenly it looks a little bit different than that right after the New Testament. What do we do with that? What do we do with this larger tradition that preceded the Baptist tradition? So I'm wrestling with that. A couple of years into the, this first faculty position, I received an invitation from the Baptist World Alliance to be a part of a, a dialogue we'd started with the Anglican Communion. They wanted some of the Baptists in that conversation to be people with expertise in this earlier period of the church's theological tradition that was important for Anglicans, but hadn't been so much for Baptists. And when I took part in that first ecumenical dialogue for me, we, we met in 2003 in, in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, at Acadia Divinity College, a Baptist college there. I realized sitting around that dialogue table as I presented a paper and responded to others' papers and took part in that dialogue, that in many ways, this was the thing for which everything that had taken place previously in my theological education was preparing me. And I experienced it as something of a further call within my call to be a theological educator, to give this special attention to ecumenical dialogue and ecumenical formation of Baptists within my own tradition. But looking back before my theological education, I, I think my early experiences as a Christian in Central Texas, in a place in Central Texas where, on the one hand, there was a large Hispanic population and many of my classmates were Catholics from that stream of the Catholic tradition. There was a German immigrant community called Westphalia close to us that sent their students after they went to a parochial Catholic school, uh, they went to our public high school along with us. And so I got to know classmates from yet another kind of stream of the Catholic tradition. Looking back on it, that formed me ecumenically in some important ways without realizing that that was what was happening. I was a Baptist, but I was recognizing in this different pattern of faith and practice that my classmates had when we talked about it, we had some things in common, despite some very real differences, and have enjoyed going back and revisiting some of that adolescent theological development from, from this perspective today. You, you mentioned the Baptist World Alliance and the dialogue with the Anglicans. And, and in, in your chapter in Sources of Light, you walk through a number of these dialogues that have, mm -hmm. that have happened at kind of that official global level with Mennonites, with the Methodist. We had Curtis Freeman on the podcast quite a while ago, back, I think, about episode 91, talking about the BWA and the dialogue with Methodists. And there have been multiple rounds with Catholics. And that's something that's actually ongoing, I guess as ongoing as things can be right now with coronavirus, and right. you are one of the two uh, Baptist co-chairs of this five-year cycle that we're in in 
we're in dialogue with the Catholics. And I wonder if you could tell us what, what's the purpose of this dialogue? How has it been going? I wonder if you can kind of introduce us to a little bit of this idea. Sure. We're now in what we call phase three of this dialogue. The first phase was back in 1984 through 1988. Now, the reason these dialogues began to begin with has a lot to do with something that happened in the life of the Catholic Church in the 1960s. Some, some listeners would be aware of the Second Vatican Council that intentionally tried to, to create ecumenical openings with the rest of the church. One of the developments of that council was that for the first time historically, the Catholic Church was saying officially that non-Catholics were Christians too. They were separated brothers and sisters that are in a certain, though imperfect, communion with the Church of Rome. One of the outcomes of all that was that the Catholic Church, immediately following the council, started initiating official ecumenical dialogues with other Christian traditions. They, they started with the Lutherans, the root of the divisions of the Reformation, uh, very quickly took on dialogue with the Eastern Orthodox, with the Anglicans, but many different Protestant traditions as well. One of those overtures was to the Baptist World Alliance, and we got around to officially responding to that, approving that, and engaging in that first set of dialogue, 84 through 88. What they focused on then was what do we have in common in terms of are being followers of Jesus Christ and people who are called to bear witness to Jesus Christ in the world today. The report of that dialogue was titled Summons to Witness to Christ. And it identified all kinds of things that we had in common in terms of our commitments to Jesus and how that gets worked out in the life of the church despite our differences. But at the end of that dialogue report, it also said there are several very real points of difference that we've identified that we need to do some more work of dialogue on, perhaps in some future round. They had to do with things like the relationship between scripture and tradition as having some kind of authoritative status in the life of the church. Of course, things like church structure, what we call ecclesiology, the, the place of Mary in the life of the church, those were matters that warranted further discussion. Now, we didn't immediately engage in another dialogue right away because it was somewhat controversial in the Baptist world, some segments of it, that we were dialoguing with Catholics as if they were fellow Christians. <laughs> so there was a lot of debate about that behind the scenes. That meant that we did not very quickly enter another dialogue. But fast forward to the early 2000s the Catholic Church once again reached out to us and, and asked, might it be possible to, to continue this dialogue? On both sides, Baptist and Catholic, we knew that there would be some resistance. So we did a series of pre-dialogue meetings. One of them was in Washington, D.C. Another one was in uh, South America. Another one was in Rome. But the purpose of those was to answer questions, address concerns. One of the things that happened in the middle of all that was that 
You may remember that back in 2000, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith of the Catholic Church issued a statement called Dominus Iesus, one statement of which was that non-Catholic churches are not churches in the proper sense. And there was a lot of blowback, pushback against that, especially among Baptists, understandably in some majority Catholic contexts like South America. Wait a minute. Uh, now you're, you're saying that our churches aren't real churches. Maybe you don't even think we're, we're actually Christians. What's this all about? Cardinal Walter Cosper was the secretary for the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity and passionately concerned for building unity with other Christian traditions between those of the Catholic Church. He personally was involved in these pre-conversations, and he played a key role in, in assuring Baptists. This is an internal word for Catholics, saying that in the Catholic sense, in the sense that it is proper to us, that is, as a Catholic distinctive, these other approaches to church aren't church in that especially Catholic sense. But we're not saying you're not churches. He said, you are churches, and we want to be in dialogue with you. Well, that, that was helpful. The foundation was laid for them proceeding in 2006 to a phase two of these conversations. I was a part of those, wasn't old enough to be a part of them. I was in high school in 84 through 88. And that gap meant that we, we didn't have any kind of embodied relational continuity with that other dialogue. These were Baptist and Catholic theologians who had not previously been in dialogue with each other. But in these four, in these five years, we, we worked on those themes that phase one had identified, like scripture and tradition, ecclesiology, baptism and Eucharist, the, the place of the papacy, Mary and the life of the church. Those were the things we tackled in phase two. And we were able to identify some rather surprising convergences on those things. So, I'll just mention two really briefly. One of them had to do with scripture and tradition. We were able to recognize that there was a robust kind of Catholic sola scriptura, that is the Bible is the supreme source of authority, even if they also do believe that subsequent tradition of its interpretation is very important, but they are, they are definitely subordinating that to the supreme authority of Scripture. From the other side, they were able to see that where, while as Baptists do pride themselves on being Biblicists, making the Bible and the Bible alone our rule for faith and practice, that does not mean that we simply skip over the rest of the Christian tradition as if it's unimportant. They recognize that there is a growing recognition among Baptist theologians, especially, but in other quarters of the Baptist world as well, that we need some of this larger tradition of the church to help us figure out how to best do faith and practice in the world today. So that was a somewhat surprising, helpful convergence. Uh, another one had to do with Mary. We, of course, we're not able to say some things together about Mary that 
Catholics would want to say about Mary. But we were able to, as Baptists, better understand some of the things that makes that work for, that make that work for them theologically and clear up some misunderstandings that some Baptists have about that. But here was the surprising convergence we were able to reach. We were able to say that while, while Baptists do not believe that they may pray to Mary, they may be conscious and should be conscious of praying with Mary in the communion of saints. Whenever we pray, our prayers are joined with all other Christians, past and present. And Mary is one of those other Christians whom we join when we pray together. And we were also able to say together that not only can we Baptists and Catholics together pray with Mary in the communion of saints, together we also say that she is a model of discipleship, not only for Christian women, but also for Christian men. Her faithfulness, her obedience is a model for how any Christian can be a follower of Jesus Christ. So that was phase two. This time, both Baptists and Catholics were very keen that we, we not lose continuity here, that we not let another two decades go by before we resume this conversation. So another proposal came and was approved by both the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity and the Baptist World Alliance to enter a phase three, which we're currently in. We began in 2017, and we're focusing this time on what it might mean to offer common witness. In some ways, we're looping back to that, that first phase emphasis, a summons to witness to Christ. Now, having done some of this hard work in phase two of uh, addressing our theological differences and forging some convergences between our tradition, on the basis of all that we have in common that we've discovered, how can we do witness together? And so we had been focusing during this five-year period on, on what it means to have some common sources on which we draw for bearing witness to Jesus in our world today, looking at the particular context in which we could bear common witness together, both looking at what's already being done in different places in the world between Baptists and Catholics in engaging in various forms of, of God's mission together, envisioning how we might do that more deliberately. We were to have met this December in Rome. Every other year, the Catholics host us, the Baptists host the other, the other years. Last year, we met in Warsaw, where the Baptists hosted us at the, the Polish Warsaw Baptist Seminary. Next year, the Catholics will get to host us again in Rome. And one thing we were going to do there was take some field trips in Rome together to some places in which Baptists and Catholics are doing on-the-ground mission, on-the-ground witness, in order to learn from those contexts and let that inform how we together as theologians were trying to, to say some things to the rest of the Baptist and Catholic world about how we can bear witness together. Well, we aren't meeting this year, 
We hope that next December, December 2021, we can reconvene. If we do that in person, it will be again in Rome. If that is not possible, we, we will probably do some virtual form of, of dialogue to keep this going. And we'll conclude this in 2022 or 2023. Again, we'll write up a, a report, an agreed statement, and submit it to our churches, Baptists and Catholic, and, and work on receiving that and helping that make a difference in the life of our ecumenical relationships on the ground. Yeah, and obviously it's not just that you all are you know, meeting in different places of the world. You also have Baptists and Catholics from all around the world. And so yeah. some, I'm sure that the, the context that they're coming from are very different in thinking about relationships in a Catholic majority country and you know a country in the United States where both groups are very large or places where neither are large. And I'm sure that that global aspect is, is a very big part of the dialogue. We, we've tried to make, uh, on the part of both delegations, Catholic and Baptist, to, to have those be geographically diverse. They're also diverse in, in terms of gender. A kind of surprising thing is that the Catholics actually have more women who are theologians on the Catholic Dialogue Commission than we do by one, but we're, we're not far behind there. One thing that we've tried to do is do some pairing so that if we have a Catholic theologian in a particular region. We try also to have a Baptist theologian representing that region as well. And one example of that, our, our current BWA president, Tomas Mackey, is a Baptist theologian in Argentina, in Buenos Aires. His Catholic counterpart on the Dialogue Commission is a professor of theology in a Catholic seminary there in Argentina in Buenos Aires. They, they knew each other before the dialogue. They were both part of our phase two dialogue. They're now together again, part of the phase three dialogue. And, and so that's one example of how these actually become concrete embodied relationships that last beyond the dialogue. Yeah, and then you, you talk about you know having a report and, and obviously, you know, I know some people some Baptists, of course, you know, are, are worried, why are we even talking to Catholics? And then there's also sometimes this question about, well, it's just dialogue. It's just theologians. You know, what's the whole point of all of this? And, and I know that for you, that it is very much about impacting local ministry. I mean, that's the context in which you are teaching. You were talking about that earlier, about the, the spiritual formation and the ministry embedded throughout the program. And you, you talk about that as well in the chapter that you wrote in Sources of Light about when pastors lead congregations to receive the light offered by these voices of ecumenical convergence through such practices of grassroots ecumenical engagement, they are helping them practice more fully in the triune God's communion creating work in the world. And so I wonder if we could kind of close on that note of thinking about, so the, all the, so what, like, what does this mean on a local church level that we're having these types of global communion dialogues? So you mentioned what I'd written about relating this to the community making work of the triune God in the world. That That's the big thing. That That's the so what of ecumenical dialogue. And it relates to you know, one of the key motifs that I try to work through my teaching of theology, whether it's in uh, the classroom or in local congregations. And, and it's like this. The God whom we know in Jesus Christ is a community sort of God. 
as Trinity, God from eternity has been about community, not isolated divine being, but persons in relationship with one another, Father, Son, and Spirit. God creates humanity in the image of God, not as isolated, lonely human being, but as persons in relationship, male and female in relationship to each other, reflecting this relationality of the triune God. Sin enters the picture, and what do we have but the alienation of relationship, the rupturing of community between humanity and God, humans and one another, humans and the created order that sustains us and and makes life flourish. Uh, You see that in the curses of the fall, all those three relationships, humans and God, humans and one another, humans and creation itself have gone awry. But this community-making work of the triune God has, ever since that, been about the work of making of humanity the community God intended for humanity from the beginning. That is God's reconciling work in Jesus Christ. The church is a community that has a role to play in that community-making work of the triune God. And here's now where ecumenism comes in. Our own church community is broken. The current state of the church is a divided one. We, we do not yet have the unity for which Jesus prayed when in John 17, he prayed that his followers would be one as he and God the Father are one. How can we fully participate in this community-making work of God in the world if we do not have community ourselves into which we can invite others? So the so what of ecumenism isn't creating some grandiose blueprint for merging all the denominations, but rather how can we be the community God wants us to be so that we can more fully participate in the community-making work of the triune God in the world? And that happens in particular locally. We cannot, as the church, participate in this community-making work of God in our larger communities if we are not working on the community we have with other followers of Jesus Christ within our local communities. And and that is where ecumenism is of vital importance for the work of the local church. We we can't do what we need to do in participating in the community-making work of God in the world unless we're working on Christian community across our differences in our local places. Very good. Well, Many blessings as that dialogue continues, and as you mentioned, paused a, a bit this year, and with all the other work that you're doing, and I, I appreciate the fact that you gave us some time, particularly while you're on sabbatical. So you know, you know, you're welcome. It's good to have the chance to, to talk with you and to, and to talk through some of these things for other people to hear about as well. So thank you, Steve. It's uh, good to see you virtually this time, and hope to see you again sometime in the near future. It's been fun. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. As a reminder, you can find the book, Sources of Light, Resources for Baptist Churches Practicing Theology, at Amazon or wherever you buy your books. As always, you'll find us at wordandway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook 
and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. It really does help. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we'd greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button, and whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, if you're not a subscriber, you're really missing out, and so I have a special offer for you. Get your first year for half off. Just go to tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. If you have any comments or feedback about this program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.